Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hi. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they're made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today we are talking about Furyborn. Yes. Furyborn is a YA novel. It is the story of two young women living a thousand years apart whose lives are interwoven by a prophecy. This prophecy claims that there will be two queens who will be able to control all seven elements. One will be the Sun Queen, who brings salvation, and the other will be the Blood Queen, who brings destruction. Da-da-da! Exactly. Riel is noble-born, whose powers are exposed when she risks everything to save her best friend, and now must prove to the world that she is not the Blood Queen. A thousand years later, Elena is a bounty hunter for a ruthless empire with the uncanny ability to stay alive when magic no longer exists. And I say no longer exists in quotes. Yes. Who will bring salvation? Who will bring destruction? Who will get the cutest boy? These are all the questions. Well, the answer is obviously Riel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Furyborn is written by Claire Legrand and was released in May 2018 of this year. And it was very highly hot talked about. I, it was. I heard some it was, stuff about this. It book. was on a lot of most anticipated YA lists this year. Yeah, yeah. So Kyle's going to talk about the history of. There's a lot you could do here. The history of magical queens and elements. Oh, cool. No, that's not oh. <laughs> what I'm talking oh, about. Boo. <laughs> magical queens. Um, yeah. I would be so down for magical queens. Uh, I don't. Yeah, that's true. There's a. You could interpret magical queen in a lot of different ways. <laughs> It's actually my whole segment's on RuPaul's drag race. <laughs> oh, that would be really great too. <laughs> no, so I want to start off um talking a little bit about the fantasy genre in general. So, oh, cool. Yeah. So just start we're gonna start there and we're gonna see where it goes. I had a lot of trouble with this segment actually, and I um but I, I think I gotta focus down. So tell, ex- tell me if it sucks or not. <laughs> okay. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm sure the internet will be too. They will be. The internet is nothing if not brutally, painfully honest sometimes. And I'm going to talk about Claire Legrand. Yes. So, Kyle, tell me about fantasy. So, like I said, I'm uh, going to start off talking a little bit about the genre of fantasy. You know, Claire and I discussed at least a couple times on this show the origins of fantasy. I feel like we do it more than a couple times because it's, you know, part of our show, but whatever. Um, and not just in the we love Tolkien, he invented fantasy, if you don't think so, go jump off a cliff kind of way. Uh, we talk about the, uh, you know, the the roots where Western fantasy genre kind of comes from and grew out of, um, even before Tolkien. So stories like the Odyssey or stories like Beowulf or the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Um, these are three of the biggest influences of the fantasy genre here in the West, you know. I always think of Beowulf. As yeah. the first fantasy book, though ancient Greeks definitely yeah. have a claim to that as well. And the, I mean, the Egyptians, yeah, and whenever the, you get mythological. It's true. And the Arthurian legends, I feel like, are another mm-hmm. big thing that that helped create the fantasy genre in, in the 19th or eight, so, excuse me, 20th century is when it really started what coming century? into its own. <laughs> Whatever century. Um, and these are the stories that help define and create our prototypical fantasy world. You know, it's a world reminiscent of medieval or dark age or renaissance, even Europe. Um, and it's worlds with knights and honor and monsters and there's adventures and you travel and there's heroics. And also, of course, you always have your fair maidens waiting to be rescued. You got to. And one of these common arguments you hear in, in this bizarre sort of defense of keeping women's roles in epic and high fantasy small is that 
That's just not how it was back then. Mm. And yeah, I to, think that's an argument for a few things now. Yeah, that's just not how it was back then. There were no women in in back yes. then, and it's so weird. It's one of the weirdest arguments I've ever heard. Because what the hell do you mean by back then? Which back then? Yes. Back in the days when there were knights and magic and dragons. <laughs> It's fantasy, you know? It can be whatever you want it to be. You know, you're not held to some bizarre historical standard that some things in a fantasy book have to be very historically accurate while others yeah. can be made up. I mean, well, I, I've heard that before, but the more yeah. you put it in context— it, What makes it even more infuriating is is that this, this so-called historical accuracy that women didn't do anything in the Middle Renaissance and Dark Ages is, is not accurate. So my original goal for my segment was to do this lightning round of these really badass female semi-historical characters uh, that could be the foundation and influence of more new high fantasy. Um, But I'm going to leave these names for future exploration. uh, And I want to leave links for some of their exploits for our Facebook page because they are really fascinating. And I read a lot about all all these characters (laughs) and research for this, but it was just too much. Um, I don't think it would do justice to only mildly touch on the crazy accomplishments of so many great people because this episode is about Furyborn, which is a high fantasy concerning two queens. And I thought I'd tell a very, very abridged tale of two queens. One of them you've probably heard of, Elizabeth I of England. She was the daughter of Henry VIII. She shepherded England through an invasion by the mighty Spanish Armada. She led England into a golden age. Um, that would see it as the almost uncontested ruler of the seas. She's kind of the sun queen. She's kind of the white queen. The other was a fighter, a scoundrel, a murderer, and a killer. I guess those are the same things. (laughs) Um, And she was a queen in her own right, albeit of a much smaller kingdom. She was a bloody queen, a red queen. And her name was Grana Miwala, also known as Grace O'Malley. Have you ever heard... No, but I thought you were going to say Mary Queen of Scots. Nope. I mean, when you started describing it, I knew it wasn't Mary Queen yeah. of Scots. But I, I anyway, continue. Tell they, me about Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots had a more contentious, contentious yes. relationship. But but Grace O'Malley and Elizabeth also had somewhat of a contentious oh, relationship. Tell- so both Grace and Elizabeth were born in 1530. And Elizabeth, as people know, she was born in a cutthroat world of politics and court intrigue. You know, she was the daughter of King Henry VIII, who had daughters from a bunch of different people and was always killing his wives. But she rose to power and, you know, eventually became the Queen of England. Grace O'Malley was the daughter of a clan leader in feudal Ireland, also born in 1530. Now, the O'Malleys were known as sailors and traders and pirates, and they lived in the very secluded Clue Bay, where they had been for over 1,000 years. And they were pretty much the only major seafaring Irish clan, the O'Malley's. Other Irish clans, that's not saying other Irish clans didn't sail, but the O'Malley's made their trade from piracy, or made their money from piracy and trade uh, overseas. Grace was born with a hunger for adventure and a love of sailing. And when she was of the age where fathers normally would take their sons out on their first raids, Grace demanded that her father take her. Her father declared that he couldn't because her hair was too long. He said it would get tangled up in the ropes of the ship. So Grace then calmly grabbed a knife and chopped off all her hair, earning the nickname Granier Mwale, which meant bald or cropped. And she then proceeded to stow away on her father's ship. (laughs) 
Um, so so he does discover her, but they're too far out at sea. And and this isn't a raid. He's going on a, a trading expedition to Spain. So he's like, ah, man, all right, well, it's too late now. I guess we're going to Spain with you. His ship gets attacked by pirates, though. She gets really excited by this. <laughs> she climbs the rigging to watch the fight. She wants to be at, like, the top position to be able to watch this fight as uh, pirates attack her father's ship. He tells her to stay on, on, you know, below decks, but she doesn't listen. She sees that a man is about to stab her father in the back. She leaps from the rigging on top of the man, you know, not crushing him, but, like, distracting him and, and you know, How old is she taking him by surprise. She's probably, if, if, it's, if she's the age that men would normally take their sons on their, like, mm-hmm. business ventures, anywhere between... 11 to 15. Okay. So she's extreme. She's very young. Um, And she saves her father by jumping on this man who is going to, you know, stab him. And they beat off the pirates and and get him out. So Grace was eventually married off to a local clan leader who she had three children with. Her husband, however, he was known as a hothead and he was killed in an ambush by rival clansmen who were easily lured him out. Grace quickly led a raid on her husband's killers to extract revenge and she was very successful. She then lobbied to become the leader of her husband's clan, which was the O'Flurdies, and was a more powerful clan than the O'Malley's. Um, and this is really interesting. So in Ireland, in old Gaelic law, women could inherit their husbands, or widows could inherit their, their husbands' fortunes and, and land and property. That was Gaelic law. English law, which was being forced on Ireland as well, in which you know some people like to give you and say, well, it's English law. Women aren't allowed to own anything. So they were like, ah, English law, sorry, Grace, you, you can't own anything. <laughs> she was pissed. She's like, screw you. Uh, she left to go back to the O'Malley's, taking about a third of, of the O'Flaherty's with her, who were just like, she's pretty cool. We want to <laughs> follow her and see where she goes. So she settled on Clare Island, and that's where she began running her business, in quotes, which included legitimate trading, but also piracy, piracy, Lots of piracy. <laughs> she became known as the Pirate Queen of Ireland and was nurse to all Irish rebellions, apparently. Um, so I just want to go through some of her exploits. She would she would raid English ships and 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 raid Spanish ships. She raided everyone. This wasn't an Ireland that was trying to band together to fight back England. This was very feudal, mm-hmm. very clan oriented. So her her and her her followers who settled on Clare Island, they saw that there was a shipwreck, you know, o- overnight. So they're like, oh, let's go to the beach. We'll see what we can get. We can salvage some stuff. She's walking along the beach. She sees this sailor and she's like, oh, he's pretty, he's pretty sexy. So she she picks him up. She takes him back to her castle. She nurses him back to health and they become lovers. Like in... Sounds like Wonder Woman. It sounds like Wonder Woman. Well, this affair what, what didn't last as long though. Uh, it, was, it was brief because he was killed by the McMahons of of Ballyvoy, which was another rival clan in the area. Grace was super pissed, so seeking vengeance, she took her people and she attacked the McMahon castle of Duna, which was in Blacksod Bay. She killed her lover's murderers, all the people in the castle, and her attack on Duna castle earned her the nickname Dark Lady of Duna. And she would she would attack this castle multiple times, <laughs> every time successfully. She was never repelled. Um, she eventually got remarried again. There was this guy, Richard Burke, who was a, another clansman who had a castle that was in a really strategic part of that Clue Bay where the O'Malley's come from. Um, and Claire really needed that, ca- or not Claire, Grace really needed that <laughs> castle. 
So she she proposes marriage. She proposes marriage to Richard Burke. She's like, hey, let's hook up. Uh, we'll become a lot more powerful because of this. Um, he's like, okay, yeah, it's a great idea. They're married for one year. He comes back to his castle. The doors are locked. All of his things are outside of it. And she's <laughs> up in a window and says, I release you from our marriage. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and she just kept his castle. Because in, Gael- in Gaelic law... At that time, women could divorce husbands, and husbands could divorce uh, their wives. So she divorced him, stole his castle. Weirdly enough, they stayed friends, and she and he became one of her main business partners. <laughs> like he's like, I, I respect it. You I got guess me. you got me. <laughs> so she, so he ended up working for her. Um, this is this story is another crazy one. She gave birth to her favorite son whilst on a ship. That son was Theobald, and and it was Grace and Richard's son. Um, the ship was attacked by pirates the next and uh, the next day, the day after she gave birth, and was getting overrun. She ran on deck with a blunderbuss in each hand and was the turning point in driving off these pirates with the, just these huge guns in each hand, just like what are you guys doing? Boom, boom, and fought off the rest of the pirates. She supposedly fought with two swords. She was a dual wielder. <laughs> so she would have one big sword. Of course and one, she is. Yeah. Of course she is. One big sword in one hand and one smaller in the other. Um, and she was she was apparently great in combat. So there's a bunch of exploits, but this is the most incredible one. And this is what relates back to Elizabeth I. So her son, Theobald, her favorite son, gets captured in a prison by this English governor, Richard Bingham. And Richard Bingham was an English governor of Ireland in that time. And he was a big jerk and he hated uh, Grace O'Malley and was was constantly like trying to get her. You know, he was like the villain and she was the heroic <laughs> The sheriff of Nottingham. Hero. Exactly, exactly. So not only had uh, Governor Richard Bingham captured Theobald, her favorite son, he had killed one of her other sons. Uh, her one of her sons from her first marriage, and he had convinced another son from her first marriage to join him and turn against oh, her. Oh, no. You know what she did to that son? She took her people, she stormed his castle, she killed four of his men, and she grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, never, ever go against your mother again, and left. <laughs> um, I love her. It's She's so cool. She's so cool. So her favorite son is captured by this English governor, and um, she doesn't know what to do because he's got— Does he look like Alan Rickman, the English governor? He definitely looks like Alan Rickman, and he chews scenery the whole time (laughs) in all of his scenes. He's just really hamming it up. (laughs) No, so favorite son gets captured. This this governor has, you know, 25 troops to every one that she has. So she's like, there's no way I can can spring them. Uh, The only way I can do this is to go and make an appeal to— the Queen of England, who is his superior. I'm going right to the top. Which was extremely scary because she was known for inciting Irish rebellions against England. She was a notorious pirate raiding English ships. Elizabeth I did know about her and had received reports, and I'll get to that a little bit at the end, which is even more fascinating about Grace and like why we know her story. Um, so she sails her ship to London, up the Thames, Totally, like, past all these these places where pirates were being hung to warn people, don't be a pirate, we're going to hang you and burn you with a stake, you're going to be tortured. But she sails up the Thames, she gets a face-to-face meeting with Elizabeth I. She finagles her way into that. Apparently, she tries to go in with a knife, which the court is aghast about. <laughs> and she ex- calmly explains to Elizabeth, like, oh, I have to carry this around for my protection because you never, you never know. You never know when a rumble's going to go down. 
she refuses to bow to Queen Elizabeth because she sees herself as an equal. She's like, look, you're the Queen of England. I'm the Queen of the O'Malley's. We're pretty much the same person. Um, Grace does not speak English because she's Irish. She speaks Gaelic. But she also speaks Latin. And they were, you know, the, the court thought that she was like some barbarian. She comes in, she refuses to bow, and then she starts conversing in Latin with Queen Elizabeth. And they apparently become kind of fast friends. They sit down by the fire and they exchange stories about, you know, the crazy things they had to do to make it in the world. Oh, ruling men. Oh, exactly. This idea of like, oh, what'd you do have to do to get become queen? Oh, you had to politic around. Oh, yeah, I had to, you know, I had to go like fight all these people. I had to smack my son around for turning against me, which apparently Queen Elizabeth found found very interesting, especially the part about her son. So she goes to Queen Elizabeth. She says, like, hey, will you please pardon Theobald, my favorite son, who's in prison? Um, will you give me my land back? Because Bingham, that governor, had had put troops on her land and taken a lot of a lot of her land. She was mostly living in a boat in her boats in the sea and like, you know, making port in different bays and stuff. Elizabeth is so taken with her. She's like, you know what? Yes. You're going to get a pension. Your son, <laughs> your son is pardoned. And you can and you can go back uh, to your land. Don't worry. And and Queen Elizabeth writes Bingham and says, you know, Grace is fine. We've we've pardoned her. Don't worry. And he's livid. He's like, no, she's evil. She's terrible. She's inciting rebellion. She's going to keep raiding ships. And Elizabeth is like, no, no, it's fine. And Grace goes back home and does what she does. She keeps raiding ships and stuff. So Bingham goes after her again. And Grace writes Elizabeth being like, look, you got to get Bingham off my, <laughs> off my ass. He's, he's being a huge, a huge jerk. And, and, and Elizabeth is like, well, we heard that you've been raiding people. And she's like, well, just my son who turned against me. He's the only one. And I got to show him who's boss. And Elizabeth is like, okay, I get it. I get it. That's true. So she then fires Bingham and has him hauled back to London and imprisoned. Listen, women have to stick together. They do. And Grace lives out the rest of her days. It, she doesn't die a violent death. You, you read all these stories about pirates who, who die violent deaths, especially women in these situations. No, she lives out her, her days in, her, in the O'Malley clan land in Clue Bay. Um, she's last seen, the last time she's seen by an English ship was uh, off the coast of Scotland where she encountered an English captain, or he encountered her rather, and she was returning from a raid on a rival Scottish clan that had raided her, and she was 67 years old. She was in a ship leading dudes in battle, Aww. raiding Scotsmen. <laughs> um, and she died in 1603, which is the exact same year as, as Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Um, and they were both 73. That is a YA heroine. That is a YA heroine. That's a and bloody like the, queen and a, and a sun queen, the, the, too. The epilogue is great, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, live till she was 73. Yeah. She, that's a long time, especially for 1603. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a great story, Kyle. No, well, the funny, the, one of the funny things, and I'll try and be quick because I know this has been long. One of the funniest things about her story is that Grace O'Malley became this kind of patriotic symbol in Ireland as they were trying to to gain independence from England in the 1800s and early 1900s. And a lot of Irish poets used her as this um, symbol of the country of Ireland, but in a way that she was a damsel, that England was, you know, was destroying Grace O'Malley and, and the Irish men need to rise up and save her. 
and you know save Ireland essentially. Now, what's really funny is like uh, she's she's this folk hero. Not a lot was written about her except she started being portrayed as more of a damsel because of these poets. But when you people started looking into her more and going into English records, they found all the correspondence that she had with Queen Elizabeth and with English um, governors and administrators of that day who are like, this Grace O'Malley keeps stealing all our stuff. <laughs> and she's such a pain. And that's why we know that she was this badass pirate and not a damsel because of English administrators and the letters that she had written that the English government saved. They were just so flustered by her. Yeah. That we know yeah. that she was a pain in their butt. Yeah. And they, so the, the, they have all these these recorded records that, you know, because England was a big bureaucracy, so they kept everything. They have all these archives. So I just thought that was really interesting and this tale of two queens that were very different but sort of similar. That was great. It was a little poignant and for this And also, book. Like, like you're saying, it wasn't like that back in the day. If you're basing fantasy off of Middle Ages and Dark yeah. Ages, some of the best stories about the um, – what's it called? The un- the chosen one. The yeah. Pers- the unlikely hero. Are women, women because in they were because unlikely they were even, heroes. Exactly. They were even more unlikely. Oh my goodness. I love it, Kyle. Thank you. Claire. Thank you for telling me that story. No problem. Well, I am gonna talk about another woman. Her name is Claire Legrand, and uh her story is not yet as good. <laughs> as Grace O'Malley. <laughs> yes. But maybe. Maybe, maybe it'll get one there. day. Maybe one day. Um, I actually really enjoyed researching her. I really liked her. She likes a lot of the same things I do, and she has an awesome name. She does have a she does have a pretty awesome a pretty name. awesome name. Um, she was born in Texas and went to the University of North Texas for undergrad and graduate uh, degree, majoring in English literature and then library science. As far as her writing journey goes, when she was twelve, she wanted to be a writer. But like many a good Claire, she joined the band in middle school. I know. I read this. I was so excited. <laughs> Started playing the trumpet. Not all good Claires play trumpets. I know. But that's true. many. Well, you were you were a woodwinds type, yes, weren't you? I was. <laughs> and she decided that she wanted to be a musician. Uh, she ended up going to college to be a musician, and her goal was to play in the New York Philharmonic. Uh, she said she loved working with other musicians and just making beautiful music with them, and the thrill of doing that. Um, which I remember from band. It, it It's great. Yeah, definitely. That's a and, good admiration. And at the time, it's what made her the happiest. Yeah. But in college, she got this idea for a book in her head and couldn't get it out and became so obsessed with it that she ended up changing her major to English and left music behind. And this idea eventually became Furyborn. Now, as far as why she wanted to write and why she continues to be a writer, uh, Claire says that Nothing to her is better than reading a book, which I agree with when you're reading a really great book. And she wants to be able to create that for as many readers as possible. Um, Her favorite book ever um, is Philip Pullman's The Dark Materials, which is actually a trilogy. And she says reading it was one of the biggest events of her life. And you can just, in Furyborn, I know you haven't read his Dark Materials. I I read uh, The Golden Compass. Oh, I, it. it's just littered with— Really? Um, I can see so much of the influence I of saw dark some materials. other influences in there, too. Oh, so I mean, I saw those, yeah, too. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, but I read halfway through reading Furyborn that her favorite book was The Dark Materials, and I went, yes. Of course it is. <laughs> yes, I, I see that now. Yeah. 
Um, so after college, she started sending out queries, and I didn't know what queries were. They're one-page letters sent to literary agents that are 300 words or less, and you're trying to get the agent excited about your book. After about a year, Diana Fox, who I don't think is her agent now but did become her agent for a while, got back to her requesting a manuscript, which was the beginning draft of Fury Born. Was it really? Yeah, and thought that it wasn't ready yet but wanted to see more of her work. So a few months later, Claire wrote The Cavendish, Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls and sent that manuscript to Diana Fox. And she said she got a few other offers, but she ended up signing with Diana because she felt their visions for her career lined up. And then shortly afterwards, they sold The Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls, which is a middle grade book, so meant for kind of preteens, like 9 to 12-year-olds. Yeah. And it ended up uh, getting put on the New York Public Library's 100 Titles for Ready and Sharing in 2012. I'd heard of it, yeah, when I, I remember that looking her up. So Yeah, so her first book— did fairly well. Since then, she has published a mix of middle grade and YA books, The Year of Shadows, Winter Spell, Summerfall, Some Kind of Happiness, which was nominated for an Edgar Award, which, and these honor the best in mystery, and Foxheart. So I'm going to go to Fury Born now and her process in writing it. The way she sells Fury Born is that it's Avatar the Last Airbender meets his dark materials meets Game of Thrones without the gratuitous violence towards women, yes. which is only in, out of all these things, only in Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no violence toward women in Last Airbender. Not no, really. <laughs> and not really in his dark materials either. Um, she said she's, like I mentioned before, had the world of this Imperium trilogy is what she's going to call all yeah. three Furyborn books when they come out in her head for about 14 years now and has been working on it since she was in college. The first character she developed was uh, Riel, and the world expanded from here. And this is a quote about her, how Riel came to her from a self-awareness interview by Sean Gattino. As cheesy as it sounds, Riel came to me in a vision. I was staring out of the window of an airplane listening to Howard Shore's score for Lord of the Rings Return of the King. A very Claire activity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, I imagined a young woman beautiful, powerful, and a great deal of pain, surrounded by a fiery battlefield. I knew she was alone and frightened, and that she was about to make a decision that would change the course of her life. I was intrigued by this woman and began asking myself questions about her. What kind of power does she have? Who loves her? Who hates her? What's about to happen to her? Why? Thus the story of Riel was born. Now that's really interesting because that's a very similar story to N.K. Jemisin's I don't remember that. Um, uh, uh, the the Broken Earth trilogy, because she said that she got inspiration for it, where she just had this dream about a really angry woman oh, with a mountain goodness. behind exactly. her. She didn't know what was going on. I think I did the segment yeah. for that, too, and yeah. I don't remember it. Well, thank you for remembering that, yeah. Kyle. I would think maybe a lot of books are kind of born that way, where you see a character doing something. And you're like, what is their Why, are, Why they are, are they doing, doing that? that? Yeah. So you're right to find out. That's really cool. It is cool. And that scene with listening to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure I've i I know that I have like That's thought a of fantasy some stories nerd scene. listening yeah. to Lord of the Rings. It definitely is. She says that this trilogy, um, which I think is kind of this trilogy that she's been writing towards like her whole career, is yeah. I mean, she never says this, but since she's this was the first uh this was the story that made her change her major. This yeah. is the first story that she submitted to agents. 
I mean, and now the, it's published. The Brandon Sanderson series we love was also one of his first things that he was never really right. ready to write. Right, and now she's later. ready to write this. Yeah. But she says it's everything she's ever loved tied up into one thing. It was inspired by her Catholic upbringing. Her, she is very Definitely fascinated. See that. Yes, <laughs> very fa- very fascinated by prophecies. Um, she loves how stories are interpreted and reinterpreted over time. Um, your um, your girl. Oh my goodness, how am I blanking on her name already? Grace O'Malley? Yeah, how she became like this maiden in distress. Yeah. And how the story gets yeah. reinterpreted. Um, her love of huge, complex stories that span time periods and her love of fantastical creatures all combined into this one story. Um, when she started writing the story, uh, it originally took place in our world, but evolved into a fantasy world. And But you can still see hints of that inspiration. I might butcher these kingdom names. I listened to some bloggers say it. Um, it's, yeah. Uh, the kingdom Sildera, which is where Riel is from, draws a lot on the French language. And the other kingdom where Elena is, Kivia, drew a lot on the Russian language. And yeah. once I read that, it made sense. Yeah. While she was writing this book, she wrote it to a lot of film scores, like a good nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and they, she has a Spotify playlist, which I will link to. Some of the things on there are, of course, Game of Thrones, 10 Cloverfield Lane, The Crown, Penny Dreadville, Vikings. There's yeah. a lot of the Tudors on there. Yeah. Yeah. Some good epic yeah, some royal good epic fantasy yeah. playlists. And then horror for Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> yes. We need some tension there yeah, sometimes. Definitely. Um, and then there is a there are a lot of fight scenes in these books. And to write the fight scenes, she watched a lot of action scenes from some of her favorite movies, and I approve of all of them: The Matrix, Mad Max Fury Road, Aliens, and of Gosh. course, lightsaber duels from Star Wars. You and had be- me at Aliens. <laughs> I know I did. And because she was a musician, she felt the rhythm of the fights was very important to her, and she worked very hard to get the pace the give and take and the acceleration and deceleration right. Yeah, yeah. Um, And like you said, she wanted to write about imperfect girls who made mistakes, unlikable female protagonists who do it their way despite what everyone else around them tells them to do, and that she hopes that her readers come away inspired to take ownership of their lives. And I think she was saying that you don't get a lot of unlikable females yeah. in books. Yeah. And you get a lot of unlikable males, but it's not even like they're unlikable. They're just, you know, they're just kind of brooding. Strong, yeah. broody male characters. Yeah. So she wanted to do the female equivalent and kind of hopes that you don't like them. Yeah. Or you don't agree with the things that they're doing. Yeah. For those who are worried, don't worry. She knows what's going to happen in the next two books. She's plotted (laughs) it all out. She has pages of notes to help keep the second and third book straight, though she says, of course, things will probably change as she's writing it. But the major inspiration moment that she had is actually a scene at the climax of the last book. Oh, okay. Cool. And I have a feeling that that probably won't change. Yeah. And then I also want to talk a little bit about her ideas of fantasy and YA and why they're so popular and uh, why she likes writing them. She thinks fantasy stands the test of time because you can discuss anything. I think it's the same for sci-fi, too, where if there is a problem in the world, like this group of people is being marginalized, it might be easier to write a fantasy story about a group of people being marginalized rather than just write about these people who are being marginalized. That can sound kind of preachy. However, you might be able to get people to think about it if you write a fantasy story about yeah. it. Well, that was the whole idea around a lot of like sci-fi authors, you know, we've mm-hmm. talked about, you know, with H.G. Wells trying to write about colonialism and he does it with aliens coming to 
or from Mars coming to right. Earth and killing people. Or uh, sci-fi writers in Eastern Europe. Exactly. Trying to kind of subvert communist you know, censors. Yeah. Without getting put in jail. Yeah, without it being too obvious. Um, and she thinks people like YA because it's so full of hope and wonder and that that's actually missing from adult literature. I can agree with that. I do, too. And she says YA fantasy combines the two. And it, to, in her opinion, it's one of the most versatile and imaginative genres. And that writing it is especially fun because you can do anything. The young readers will follow you anywhere, whereas yeah. adults tend to get more grounded in yeah. reality. Yeah. And she thinks adults like YA fantasy because they're still searching for that hope and wonder. Yeah. And they can find it in, in YA. YA. And it also it's acceptable in YA. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's I think I think that way where I let a lot slide in YA that I think I would get frustrated in, in a quote genres. unquote adult book. Yeah. Um as far as how Fury Born is done, I think it's done rather well. It debuted at the uh, number four slot on the New York Times bestseller list. I have read multiple uh, blog posts and lists praising it. Yeah. Um, and right now, she is writing Saw Kill Girls, a queer feminist horror novel for young adults that is releasing in October of this year. And she has two more Fury Borns coming out. Busy woman, that Claire Legrand. Yeah, she likes all the things I do. So I know. And I like you guys her a have lot. The same name. Only the same name. You probably have the same birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Claire Legrand? No, I wish I was writing fantasy. Um, so, Kyle, I picked this because I love YA fantasy. I guess I get to explore the wonder that I don't get to explore in my adult it's literature. It's true. It's true. What did you think? I liked half of this book. Okay. What half? Riel's half. So okay. that makes sense. For those who don't know, this book is is entirely written from you know, not entirely, but mostly written from the two queens' perspectives, and a they jump back and apart. forth, and they're a thousand years apart. So there's Riel, who's the the one queen. I don't want to say which, but she's the er, she's the earlier queen. She's a mm -hmm. thousand years earlier, and then there's Eliana, who's a thousand years later. I liked the earlier queen so much more and every time it switched I was like really <laughs> going back to this dour chick <laughs> what about you Claire I did really enjoy it um, I see it's so funny because I went back and forth on which one I liked more because there were parts of Eliana's story that I was so excited about you know some of the fights were really cool because yeah. she fights with daggers which I always find very Grace O'Malley yes. dual wielding <laughs> Um, and then there were parts of Riel's that I was really interested in, and then sometimes I felt that they ebbed and flowed. But overall, I mean, YA fantasy is like my, like, warm buttered toast with hot chocolate. It just feels really good for me yeah. to read. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I give it so many passes that I wouldn't give anything yeah. else. And I loved the magic in this. I love the um, His Dark Materials trilogy. It brought me back to that. So it was yeah. almost comforting. It was yeah. comforting, it was, I should yeah. say. And then it was nostalgically comforting for me as well. Yeah. Because it was a nostalgic of fantasy that I already love. Yeah. I I when I read the prologue to this book, I was immediately sold. I was right. Like, I was the like, prologue is great. The prologue is killer. I was like, oh man. I am in. I'm ready to go. Um, but then with the with I really just wanted to read the the Riel chapters because I thought the Eliana ones just got there was it was con there was constantly another fight and and I love fights like it's weird for, to hear myself say this but 
I wanted to be, I, I liked reels. They were a little slower. There was time to process. You know, <laughs> there was, you start, the book starts at a very interesting place with Riel, the right. character. And to me, I was like, how did we get there? Because the, the prologue is two years ahead of where chapter one is. Mm-hmm. So it's Riel in the future and she's in a bad place. So I, I'm, I was really curious. I was like, well, how did this happen? You know, mm-hmm. this Tarantino thing, like we'll start backwards. Uh, but with Eliana, I just I didn't I didn't care. I also thought she was a big jerk, <laughs> an unlikable female protagonist. She was. Yeah, I didn't love Eliana the whole time. I was always curious of what was going to happen to her. Yeah. Um, and so also when I was reading this book, I loved it, and I kept on thinking, "Oh my God, I'm making Kyle read this." <laughs> <laughs> and I I have to say. Like, there's, I mean, it's YA fantasy. There's, like, silly romance in it, which I enjoy. Yeah. It's oh, fun. no. There's, so, there's some sexy men in this book. <laughs> there's that two is, sexy men. There's two sexy That is a men. selling point. <laughs> but I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, oh, God, Kyle is reading this. That's, so I I had a question. I mean, don't feel ashamed, first of all, Claire, because I I mean, I, I got over it. I got over it. But yeah, it's one of those yeah. things where, like, you've asked your friend to read this book. <laughs> yeah. And you don't think he's going to appreciate the hot brooding men in the same way that you are. <laughs> I mean, I made you watch Ash versus Evil Dead and Buckets of Gore. So this is my own. <laughs> you had it two, coming. Two-way street. Um, yeah, you're you're right. I don't love the YA genre, but I didn't, reading this, I enjoyed half of this book. And the other half wasn't. It wasn't for you. like it wasn't for you. Well, not even that it wasn't for me. It wasn't this like, oh, this is so bad. I could never. It was just something I wasn't that into. But I reading it, is this YA? I kept thinking it like this is a hundred percent YA. Really? Well, it hits a lot of the beats that YA tends to hit. <laughs> it is parts of it are adult, but I think it's also very simplistic. Actually, that's the wrong word to use. I think in YA, and of course it varies because there's a whole bunch in the YA genre, it tends to be a little bit more straightforward. And also, it's written about younger characters. And I think that is really what defines it as YA. Yeah. Um, it, I think YA characters tend to be like 15 to 21-ish. And they are uh, dealing with adult situations usually or transitioning into adult situations from being a teenager. Like, I think you would categorize Catcher in the Rye as YA. Yeah, but I that book's dumb. But anyway, um, <laughs> I agree. No, but no, I, I see what you're saying. And there is this thing in YA books where, I, because when you're a kid, everything feels more intensely. The, mm-hmm. the YA books, the characters in there are just feeling these things so intensely. I mean, if you look at Harry Potter, his emotions are so intense. Like he is dealing with stressful things. Yeah. But he also implodes. Yeah in a very big way that an adult might quite not. But I think when you're reading it, especially as a teenager, you sympathize with that. Yeah. I liked Catcher in the Rye as a teenager because I sympathized with yeah. Holden. And I think I go back to reading fantasy YA because it's the way that I can, it was what I enjoyed reading the most as a teenager. Yeah, And it's so a nostalgic kind of, oh, I relate to these emotions in a weird way way yeah i I know i I see exactly where you're coming from with the two narrators riel once again i hate to keep harping Mm -hmm. on it but i feel like there was a bit more subtlety 
in the emotion mm-hmm. and in what was going on. And there's like you could she she was had had these repressed powers, and then she's becoming an adult and she's letting those powers out. And I feel like. You know, there's obviously like metaphors and stuff there. I I thought that was I don't know. I just it oh, spoke I think to me more. Riel is Clara Legrand's favorite character. Obviously, she was the first one she thought of. Yeah, I think yeah. she's a little bit more fleshed, fleshed out, out, definitely. Um, and Elena's just kind of this badass. Yeah. This... Um, who is who is cool? I like Elena. Um. So Claire, tell me about these love interests and why <laughs> they are so YA. <laughs> <sighs> Again, not all YA is the same. I don't want to completely categorize it. However, I think there's usually someone brooding. Yeah. Someone who's dark. I think it's this idealized version of what you thought you were going to fall in love with when you were a teenager. For me. Yeah. I I assumed I was going to end up with like a YA. A brooding, dark, Uh, tortured dashingly handsome he was gonna man. be so handsome he, I mean it's almost it's the precursor to a romance novel yeah. <laughs> he uh, gets you he's gonna love you forever yeah. you know yeah uh, he forgives you for all of your faults yeah um, and he has his own tortured past <laughs> that you can help heal yeah <laughs> see I with with YA I don't know I, I'm just I'm thinking of fantasy books that I like that do have a younger protagonist and I wouldn't call them all YA, but maybe maybe that's me like mislabeling them or not realizing. We've it talked too. about this before. YA also is a category that publishers adopted for a target demographic. So it's not yeah, it's less of a genre. When you're writing YA, I think you're actually targeting younger yeah. kids. And yeah. adults read it too, which is part of the reason it's so popular. Yeah. But it is books written with teenagers in mind. Yeah. Now, and these fantasies, these fantasies with younger characters are written with adults in mind. Yeah. I One of the flashbacks I kept getting from this was, at times, The Wheel of Time, which you, neither you or James have, has read. No, I, I think I have it on my Kindle. I need to just and, start. And those that's that book is about, the most of the main characters are teenagers in that. But I never thought of it as a YA, and Do you now think it's targeted I'm wondering. Towards I don't think back then it was. Maybe it was. I, I had it. I read it because my mom and dad read it, and I I had never thought of my mom as reading YA, but maybe she did. So I, that's why I'm curious for you guys to read that one day and tell me if you think it's YA or if you think it's more epic fantasy or like. Mm-hmm. And the, those two things can be combined because Furyborn is definitely definitely an epic, epic fantasy. fantasy. It has a. It's a very involved world. There's a lot of stuff going on. It seems like there's a pretty big depth of history. Like she thought thought it out uh-huh. pretty thoroughly. Like these characters and this history. Right. The, like we, like I was saying, YA spans a lot of books and yeah. things that you wouldn't necessarily think to categorize YA are YA. But then it it goes back to what you categorize YA as because were the writers writing this with teenagers in mind or were they writing it with adults in mind? Or were they writing the way it just because they thought they wanted to? Right. But Catcher in the Rye, who is he? Who is Salinger writing that for? I don't know. We can go ask him up in Maine or wherever the hell he uh, hides he, in his compound. <laughs> um, or, you know, Harry Potter is YA, it's targeted towards kids, but it is beloved by all age groups. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think it's a really interesting spectrum. And I it think is. maybe some books are maybe targeted for adults 
are actually more beloved by kids. Yeah. Um, I think his Dark Materials, Philip Pullman's books, I love that. I reread them as an adult. I read them as a teenager too, and they are just as good as an adult. And yeah. I think handing that book to an adult is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. Definitely. Well, what what do you feel about handing Furyborn to an adult? If the adult is like me <laughs> and loves fantasy YA, absolutely. Please read this. If it's my brother, no. <laughs> I agree. Who likes fantasy, but I don't know if he would appreciate the tall, brooding men in it. Yeah, I agree. But if you, I like, I would recommend this to my sister, definitely, who I know loves YA fantasy. And I think if you're looking for that YA fantasy romp, it definitely is going to press your the right buttons. Oh, on it you. completely does. Also, I want to shout out Unassigned Reading. Uh, they're a Harry Potter podcast. And they have really interesting discussions on Harry Potter. But they also have great recommendations. Um, At the beginning of their podcast, they go through the books they're reading and whether they recommend them or not. And they were recommending so many books that we've done on the podcast that we've loved that they came out with Furyborn and were speaking so highly of it that I was like, I texted you. I was like, let's do Furyborn. I hadn't even read it. I was like, no, they say it's good. Um, And it was good. So thank you to Unassigned Reading for the recommendation. Thank you, Unassigned Reading. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. That helps the show so much, so please do if you haven't. Uh, You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303. That's K-L-E-X. Three zero three, And I can be found at, along with Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Grace O'Malley, the badass, Elizabeth First. And, another uh, badass. And another badass. And, and Claire Legrand. Claire Legrand. Another badass. On our Facebook page and Twitter where we're going to post some of the articles and stuff we use in our show. I also want to make sure that I post at least one thing about each of the women um, I mentioned earlier. This whole just wealth of of badass women in history. Uh, And that is Tamiris of Scythia, Joan of Arc, Aethelflaed, and Julie d'Aubigné. And these are just a small sample size. I cannot wait to read those. Yeah. Very, but they're very cool, and I wish I could have crammed them all into my <laughs> very long segment anyway. <laughs> Our producer, who is not as handsome and brooding as he thinks he is, is James Foley. Our logo was done by Patty Highland, who is the strong, feminine, female She's the pirate hero captain of New Jersey. <laughs> of New Jersey. She's the Grace O'Malley of New Jersey. Be careful out there. And uh, look out, Nikita, because she's taking the house. <laughs> And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is exactly as handsome and brooding as he thinks he is. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.